It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, in honor of everyone's favorite tennis tournament, we've got a glimpse into the secret, sordid history of the world's poshest game. It was always presented in these images as being a kind of garden party sort of affair with, you know, that might be a portrait of a man and a girl flirting and the chaperone is sitting in the background looking rather annoyed and there's much less about the tennis than there is about the cooling drinks and the strawberries and, um, well, the flirtation, really. And a little reminder that on our website, David Lehman is currently running his semi-annual summer haiku contest. It's been going just about three years strong now, and entries close this Sunday at midnight. Check out the requirements at theamericanscholar.org. It's the Next Line Please blog. Winners are announced on Tuesday. First up, though, we've got the dirt on first impressions. We make up our minds about other people within seconds of meeting them, whether they're trustworthy or attractive, even whether they're dominant personalities. We think we're so good at making snap judgments. But it turns out that our first impressions are pretty inaccurate. So bad, in fact, that most of the time we'd be better off ignoring other people's faces entirely. Alexander Todorov has been studying faces, thousands of them, for years. And his new book, Face Value, digs into the irresistible influence that first impressions have had over the centuries, and even today. So much for judging a book by its cover. Alexander joined us in the studio recently to talk about it. I guess my first question is, um, what's your first impression of me? No, actually, don't answer that. (laughs) Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what we're looking at when we make first impressions? It can mean so many different things. Are there particular things that I, when I'm looking at you, I'm like, aha, his eyebrows. Well, number one, we don't figure this out. We think we figured this out, but we don't. I mean, there's no good evidence that this uh, inference is actually accurate as it comes to the character of the person. But number two, we do agree on these impressions, and this is surprising, although psychologists have known this for over 100 years. In the very first uh, two decades of psychology's existence, psychologists had findings that people agree on these first impressions. Recently, we're actually able to build mathematical models that essentially visualize our face stereotypes. 
And the book is richly illustrated because it's very difficult to describe, well, here are the things that change because there are way too many things that change. So in the case of trustworthiness, the best we can do to describe it verbally is to describe it in terms of global characteristics. One of the major inputs for impressions of trustworthiness is emotional expressions. And that doesn't mean the person should be grinning or they should be barring their teeth as if they're angry. Even very subtle emotional expressions, even when you're rested, you will typically will look better than if you're sleep deprived. So if a person looks calm and happy at the moment, they're likely to be perceived as trustworthy. If they kind of look disgruntled, they're unhappy, they will be perceived as untrustworthy. Another input is femininity, masculinity. Feminine faces, on average, are perceived as more trustworthy than masculine faces. Hmm. So is this something that's the same across cultures and countries, or is it like in America or in Massachusetts? Or Yeah, no, you're right. It's not quite. It's not perceived the same way across cultures. There's not sufficient number of cross-cultural studies, but generally when you think about impressions, you can think of this many, many different contributions. So there are contributions from signals that we most of us agree, like emotional signals, and there would be cross-cultural variations, but you would expect to find it in most cultures. Masculinity, femininity, and the stereotypes that go along with it, you will find in most cultures because that goes with physical strength, body differences, and so on. And there are things that are very specific to culture. For example, typicality, what you perceive as typical face. So faces that we perceive as typical, we tend to like and trust. And faces that we perceive as atypical, we tend to distrust. And that naturally very much depends on the culture and you can show that within each culture as the face becomes more culturally typical people trust it much more interesting so you mentioned a couple minutes ago that we all agree on these trustworthy dominant etc traits but that they're not exactly accurate so how accurate are our first impressions i mean my view is that uh, there's basically zero accuracy when it comes to impressions about actual character. They could be accurate here and now. Yes, in the impressions of trustworthiness, you're trying to pick up on subtle emotional cues, and they might be accurate describing your particular state in the moment, but it's very doubtful they will describe your personality as a trustworthy or not. Maybe one impression that might have a small kernel of truth is dominance, because that is really correlated with physical strength. And essentially, people can tell from a face how large the person is. Larger bodies come with larger faces. And again, in modern world, most of the dominance hierarchies are not based on your physical strength, but on many other qualities that are not detectable in the face. Hmm. And we're all still, I guess, living with the illusion that we're pretty good at guessing people's character by how they look. And that has a historical basis, right? How old is the study of physiognomy? Incredibly old. The first preserved documents uh, date back to Aristotle's time. And it became extremely, extremely popular in 19th, 18th century after the publication of a four-volume work, Essays on Physiognomy, by Johann Kaspar Lavater. And this was a 
immensely, immensely popular in Europe. And then it kind of permitted 19th century culture. It was very important in early 20th century. The physiognomists at the time called themselves character analysts, and they tried to work with various businesses, helping with employer selections based on the idea that you can find out the right employers based on their facial appearance. And they would use that to figure out who was criminal, right? Or to try to figure oh, out... The, yeah. This is particularly trying to find out the criminal type has a very, very long history. In 19th century, Cesare Lombroso, who is the founder of criminal anthropology, wrote books like The Criminal Man, The Criminal Woman. And his essential belief was that criminals or people who were convicted are not humans. There's some subhuman kind of unevolved species and all of this you could read it from their appearance and he was hugely influential. Right. I think it's pretty easy to see how that could go dangerously wrong if you're trying to arrest people before they do crimes. Oh, or anything. But, uh, indeed, indeed. And for me the more scary part and one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book is because I see that there has been a revival of, of many of the physiognomist ideas in the last 10-15 years. In fact, there was a paper by two computer scientists in China claiming that presumably you can guess with incredible high rate of accuracy whether a person is a criminal or not based on their facial image. And we ended up writing a very large piece with uh, two computer scientists from Google just uh, looking into all of the assumptions that uh, went into this paper. And in fact, a lot of the message is kind of dangerous, it's, especially now with modern computer science methods. It's like people like have this toy, which could be very dangerous. And it and it's completely, it's not true that, it, that it's free of biases. What kinds of images you fit into the machine it's a major determinant of what you're going to observe. So there are many issues. And yeah, if you rely on this, this could be a deeply problematic scientifically and obviously ethically. Mm. Do you see any other ethical risks for using our first impressions legally or on a daily basis? Well, there was a recent study which compared impressions of people who were sentenced to death and people who were sentenced to life without parole for the same crime. And one of the findings is that the unfortunate people who were sentenced to death look more untrustworthy. It's very difficult to get rid of these impressions. And, and this is in a particular serious domain, but it also come, it comes up in things like uh, employee selection in many, in many, many uh, important areas of life where you wouldn't want your decision to be influenced by appearance. Yeah. The obvious question for me then with um, the death row example is how much race maps onto this untrustworthiness? This study actually control for race. So this wow. is within the same race. So, so the effects of appearance uh, over and above race, but obviously race, it plays an incredibly important role when it comes to different kinds of discrimination. Mm. Have you uh, incorporated looking at race into any of the studies that you've done? Not, not, uh, not in a, any, uh, to any large extent, partly because we really wanted to focus on impressions when people are free of explicit biases and prejudice or implicit biases and prejudices, because in a sense, first impressions are a form of an implicit biases. Mm. And the moment you 
true of race or even gender in the picture, a lot of things change. The moment you see a face and you categorize it as belonging to a particular category, gender, race, ethnicities, this categorization comes up with a number of associations that are part of our mind, and that can completely change how you perceive the face. That's so interesting. So if we're kind of bad at making first impressions and doing accurate first impressions for character, what's the reason why we do it at all? Why can't we rid ourselves of this? Well, I think that uh, first impressions really serve important psychological functions. In a way, in the absence of any good information, they are our best attempt to figure out the intentions of other people. What are they going to do now? Are they positively predisposed toward me or negatively? Could they act on these intentions? And that's the best we can do in the situation. And obviously, we don't rely only on facial cues how people are dressed, what is the situation, is it uh, 2 o'clock in the morning in the subway or is it, you know, at noon and DuPont Circle, that would make a big difference. So there's, in this contextually rich situations, your first impressions might be accurate, but again, they're usually accurate here and now, what is going on right now, and it's a leap of faith, inferential leap to think, well, from you being rude to me or being very nice to me, well, you must be this amazing or this rude person, depending on the situation. As you can think, we all have bad and good days. We all have very busy, hectic moments of the day that we're not going to be very nice, just we're not going to be very responsive to other social demands. And to what extent this kind of impression should be reliable as what you are in general? We often inferring too much out of too little information. Yeah, one of the most interesting parts of the book I thought was towards the end when you talk about sort of what evolutionary impulses mm -hmm. there might be. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What our best guess is, I guess? So uh, it's a very interesting question. Often the there's this tendency in science if you find some kind of a pervasive bias and the impulse is to say, well, you see, it's probably something that we have evolved uh, and hence it must be something that we are innate and we are biologically prepared. I think that this is a very hard case to make in the case of physiognomy because if you think about the evolution of the human species and let's imagine that it's compressed within 24 hours. For most, most of the time, except for the last five minutes of these 24 hours, we have been living in essentially extended families, ranging from 5 to 80, 100. And in this very small scale societies, you know everybody. And you have a lot of first-hand information. You have a lot of second-hand information from testimonies of friends, relatives, and so on. And you don't need to rely on appearance to infer who is the leader in the group? Who is the person who is aggressive? Who is the guy you shouldn't be joking with? This all changes with the emergence of modern states in the last five minutes of this 24-hour day. Then suddenly you live with strangers. Jared Diamond had a nice line in one of his books. That this was the first time in the human history where we had to encounter strangers without trying to kill them. <laughs> and living with strangers is a bit scary. And physiognomy comes as a kind of a tool 
of trying to size up the people. For me also, it's not coincidental that it becomes extremely popular at 19th century. Well, what is special for 19th century? It is the time of big industrial migration. It has like huge influx of people in uh, the major cities. And this is all entails interactions with people that you don't know. And being able to size up people, even if it's not quite accurate, gives you this kind of illusion of sense of control. This is not to say that there are no evolutionary adaptations in the face. For example, we are the primate with the most elongated eye, and we are the only primate from all of the hundreds of uh, species that have been studied uh, with white sclera which makes it so the sclera of the eye is much lighter than our skin and the iris, which makes detection of eye gaze very easy. And this is important because eye gaze, we can communicate from a distance, we can share attention, I can direct your attention to a particular object. We also, our faces are hairless, which makes it easier to detect emotions. In fact, uh, uh, in mammals, trichromatic vision is very rare. Uh, and uh, only primates, and not only all primates, are trichromatic. So see, like most humans see. And having a trichromatic vision makes it much easier to detect changes in skin tone, changes, you know, you can think of blushing and many other things when a person is sick. So there are all of these things that facilitate detection of uh, mental states. But these are things that are happening here and now. Whatever case could be made, it's really that this changes about facilitating of social communication. And that's not about character. It's about what's happening here and now, whether we can communicate and whether we can coordinate our actions. It's kind of ironic, too, that we're using our highly developed communication skills to make bad judgments about people. Well, again, you know, it's only to the extent that you think that your judgment here and now mm -hmm. generalizes across time and situations. That makes me think that maybe when we're looking at faces and making judgments about them, we're learning more about ourselves than the faces. To a large extent, uh, the argument in my book is we're learning more about our minds. I mean, first impressions are important because to me, they're one of part of our eternal quest, which is to know others. There's a great book by Cheney and Zayford, Baboon Metaphysics, where they study uh, baboons in their real-life uh, conditions. And they have a great line, uh, what are the main problems that baboons face? And they say, well, it could be summarized with two words, other baboons. <laughs> and this applies to us with much greater force. I mean, what are the greatest problems we face? Other humans. You see, always, these are our major problems, navigating social relationships, interacting with strangers, and the quest to know these other humans, it's something deeply, it's part of our human nature. It's all about understanding the mind. To see some socially agreed upon stereotypes in action, check out the episode page on our website, where we've got a link to Alexander Todorov's work at Princeton's Social Perception Lab, with some really cool video demonstrations of different kinds of faces in action, including some pretty mean mugs. And you can read more about the crazy things that physiognomists got up to in the 19th century in Alexander Todorov's new book, Face Value, including the coolest study he's done yet. 
on the extreme facial expressions of tennis players. We had a paper that used a lot of tennis players, but it works for pain and pleasure and tennis players because their faces after they won or lost a point, you can't tell from the face whether the person is experiencing positive or negative feelings, basically. Everything looks negative when the extreme emotion, it's like none of the standard models of emotion explains this finding because according to all models, if the emotion becomes more intense and this is super intense, they should be more differentiating. But no, apparently when the arousal is really high, everything gets kind of blurred. So, speaking of tennis, in case you missed it, somehow, Wimbledon is wrapping up this weekend. Serena Williams may not be playing, but her sister Venus is, and Roger Federer is gunning for his eighth win. But because I remember very little of the tennis I learned to play half-heartedly as a child, I've brought on an expert on the subject, Elizabeth Wilson tennis fan, cultural historian, and most importantly, Brit. Her book, Love Game, is a history of tennis from Victorian pastime to global phenomenon. She's joining us from London, home of the All England Tennis and Croquet Club, which hosts Wimbledon every year. Thanks so much for joining us from across the pond, Elizabeth. Not at all. Thanks for inviting me. Tennis is usually thought of as this fierce technical game, but you make the case that tennis was originally this languid, erotic pastime in the Victorian era. So how did you come to this conclusion? Well, I think what started me off or um, certainly helped me along the way was about four or five years ago, there was an exhibition in England of tennis-related art. And there was a whole period from the late 19th century up until about the 1940s when tennis featured quite heavily in painting, photography, drawing and so on. And it was always presented in these images as being a kind of garden party sort of affair with, you know, that might be a portrait of a man and a girl flirting and the chaperone is sitting in the background looking rather annoyed. And there's much less about the tennis than there is about the cooling drinks and the strawberries and, um, well, the flirtation, really. So um, the Victorian lawn tennis on grass was really the second life of tennis because it had had this life in the Renaissance when it was a different kind of game. Then it was also seen as a kind of refined game where young men would learn good manners. So it was always seen as rather different from sports such as football, uh, you know, which were very much played in the streets. They were played by peasants, working class people and so on. The downside of it being seen as an erotic or a sort of um, naughty kind of thing was that it wasn't seen as a very manly game. And of course, one reason for that was because women actually played alongside men which, if you think about it, is very unusual in sport. That in itself, the presence of women, made it seem very unmanly to the typical Victorian sort of muscular Christian. So from the beginning, it had this slightly deviant, dissolute, sort of decadent feel about it. Right. And we see that, too, in the way that it, over the years, has been home to some really interesting questions of gender thinking about costumes, for instance, what people wear, how they behave? Well, certainly one interesting thing about tennis in the television age is that spectators 
get a really close view on the screen of the player, male or female. So you see every bead of sweat, you see the earrings, the nail varnish, you see everything and the, the brief skirts, you know, the everything. And I think this in itself makes it a kind of erotic spectacle so that television has really increased that. It's really sort of um, pumped it up in a way. And, of course, today, women particularly wear very, very brief costumes, much more than they do in golf, for example, or football. But the costumes, especially for the top players, the top women players, you know, Serena Williams, uh, Maria Sharapova in the past, they take immense care to look as glamorous as they possibly can. You know, perhaps glamorous is a slightly better word than simply erotic. So what exactly made tennis able to be so inclusive at the beginning? And then when did it start separating out? Well, I think it was because it started off as a kind of party game. It was really meant to replace croquet, which was a game that people played at garden parties or house parties in the country. And it was meant to be a social pastime where men and women did play together. So tennis developed out of that. But then I think some uh, male players particularly thought that it had much greater potential to be a really important sport and began to see all its possibilities. And there were various attempts to exclude women for a time and um, women's doubles were played away from the main courts and so on but very rapidly Wimbledon and other tournaments became tremendous social occasions as well as just sporting events so tennis went beyond the merely sporting to become something like the races going to Ascot in Britain you know prestigious horse riding event and so then again it becomes associated with uh, upper and upper middle class ways of life leisure display of wealth and so on so it becomes a kind of parade you know so even today Wimbledon particularly is a kind of social occasion and the big matches you know royalty come and all sorts of well-known figures turn up And also, I think that if you think about a tennis tournament, it's not like a football match. You know, you go to the match and then you come home again. But going to a tennis tournament is a day's outing. You know, you go all day, you eat, you drink, you wander about, you see several matches. It's a social occasion um, as well as just a game of something. So in all sorts of ways, it's a kind of rich kind of experience, really, I think. One of the interesting things about your book, too, though, is the way you talk about how the fact that it was such a lofty, playful diversion sort of gets at some of the social issues that it brings out, like its exclusion of anybody who wasn't white, for instance, or um, the snobbery in it, and even, you know, the way that women's bodies were policed. I think that I don't think tennis was any worse in relation to racism than other sports. I think, in a way, you could say it was worse in class terms because all the old tournaments, when they were run by amateurs, before tennis was opened up to everyone, uh, it was all mixed up with belonging to a socially prestigious tennis club you know the club itself might be difficult to get into unless you had the right friends or came from the right family so there was an awful lot of class prejudice and class distinction in tennis I think perhaps more than in other sports 
And that sort of filtered over into a demeaning attitude to women, which, of course, was noticeable in tennis because women didn't participate in the same way in other sports. So the really bad way in which um, players like Billie Jean King, for example, were treated sometimes, you know, told their clothes weren't fit to be seen on the court and snubbed by people. And she really had to fight with all the old amateur Uh, people in charge of the game to really get women's tennis taken seriously at all. And in some ways it still isn't, you know, but that's another story in a way. So I think tennis has always been uh, associated with or even tainted with class prejudice and snobbery. I think its dreadful attitude in some ways to race isn't so different from other sports. But there was, of course, in the United States, there was a completely separate Black Tennis Players Association until after the Second War, you know, which is pretty shocking, really, sort of complete apartheid in tennis. But of course, you still, there are other reasons why there are still few Black players, perhaps particularly men, in tennis, partly because basketball and baseball in the States um, offer better rewards and perhaps it's easier for sportsmen to sort of acclimatize. Perhaps it's a more friendly environment in a way. I think that's true, especially if you think about how easy it is to start a pickup basketball game, for instance. All you really need is a hoop and a ball and a couple other people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a very good point, because obviously for tennis, you need rackets, you need to place to play. Uh, which is usually has to be something associated with a club um, or there is college tennis in the States. But um, you have to go through so many hoops to sort of get to the starting point, really. Right. And someone has to explain the rules to you, which are pretty complicated. Well, yes, that's also very true. Yes. One last question for you, sort of uh, touching on what you brought up with Billie Jean King. There's a bit in your book where you talk about how tennis sort of attracts outsiders, people who might not otherwise fit into other sports, but who could or who are attracted to tennis for whatever reason. What do you think it is about tennis that holds our fascination and draws people to it? Well, I think it is, you know, it is a very aesthetic game. That's one thing. Maybe it attracts people who are sort of more of a vaguely artistic bend. Um, There is this German player, Dustin Brown, who is a raster. He has huge, long raster locks. And he's just a free spirit, you know. So he lived for a long time in a caravan and he just drove this caravan around Europe and later further afield, just playing tennis when he wanted to. And he's so good that he gets into tournaments and he plays when he wants to and he plays his own game. He plays a completely different game from most players today. Um, And, you know, tennis can be doing with an individual like that because it's a very individualist game. I mean, football, cricket, there has to be a team. You have to conform to the team, don't you? Even if people weren't outstandingly odd or glamorous or eccentric before they got into tennis, the very way in which tennis operates will make them seem more original and more special in a way because it is so very heavily focused on these individual personalities, I think. And speaking of, who will you be rooting for at Wimbledon? Oh, well, I always root for Federer, actually. (laughs) I'd really like him to get his eighth Wimbledon. I think that would be fantastic. That's it for our abbreviated introduction to the history of tennis. 
There's way more in Elizabeth Wilson's book, Love Game, which was fun for even a non-tennis fan to read. And that's it for Smarty Fans. Hope you got in some tennis watching, tennis reading, or just some extreme tennis facial expressions this week. And we'll see you next time. Take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.